admittedly we're going to start off talking about a concept as we tend to do in these Voyager videos. It's actually funny. When I first sat down to do these, God, it's been like two years now, hasn't it? I've been looking at Voyager for almost over two years. It's a weird thought. Um, the original idea was to really analyze the episodes, but over time it's become more of a general look at writing and the construction of television, how television works, you know, the production uh, of such a show with regards to effects or scheduling or how the politics works. You know, I've, I've been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes, this-is-how-TV-worked past tense because that's the TV era I knew. I don't really know how TV works nowadays uh, behind-the-scenes because obviously I haven't been involved in that at all. I mention this, though, because it's funny, because the original intent was to talk about that kind of stuff over on Babylon 5, but then again, I also intended to get to Babylon 5 before now, and obviously I have not done so yet. Here's hoping, you know, I'm still hoping to get to that, but anyways. So what we're going to talk about is a concept called body snatching. Yeah! No, I'm kidding. That's basically a, a, a gateway into what I really want to talk about. Suspension of disbelief. Suspension of disbelief is exactly what it sounds like. You know, it's when you're like, okay, this is stupid, but I'm going to suspend my disbelief. I'm going to put it on hold so that I can enjoy whatever it is I'm watching, playing, or reading, right? Uh, it basically only really applies to fiction. It, it can apply to real life, but that's kind of a nah, situation. So let's not even go into that. So when you suspend your disbelief, generally you do so because of one of two reasons. One... I don't feel like thinking. Uh, I'm just going to watch this thing. It doesn't even have to be like a mindless action flick. It can be whatever, just... Uh. Or, whatever is happening is nonsensical, but you're willing to put that on hold in order to enjoy the episode or the movie or book or whatever. As I've said a few dozen, dozen times, I don't care so much if you're going to do something... You know, stupid, if you have a stupid premise or a stupid plot, as long as you do something with it, as long as you make it entertaining or make it engaging or otherwise make it work. Star Trek is actually well known for taking ridiculous premises and actually going somewhere with it. This is not one of those episodes, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so yeah, suspension of disbelief. Body snatching by itself is... Well, it can take one of two forms. And this episode kind of goes by a hybrid between the two, ironically. The first form is the obvious. You put your mind into someone else's body. This has been a, a trope in fiction for about a century at this point, actually. It's really old. You know, it's not exactly new. The other is, of course, the more common, you know, you take the form of someone else, like the changeling kind of concept, which, again, is a really old concept going back, uh, arguably, to the Greek era, but, you know, that's debatable. I don't want to get into the discussion of that, because, frankly, I don't care. Point is, both of these concepts are old. It, so why is it this is such an old concept? I think the appeal of the body-snatching concept in either of its executions really comes down to the idea of paranoia and the usage thereof in order to implement tension, horror, and drama. The idea being that you literally don't know who you're interacting with or why or how or at any moment you could be someone else or be taken over by someone else. These are thoughts that are horrifying and can cause a great deal of good drama in, in fiction. So it's, it's really understandable why this thing keeps going back to over and over. It's also understandable why this is such a common thing in uh, science fiction specifically. It's right up there with, you know, FTL Drive, basically. Now, I didn't really talk about this back in Warlord, because I didn't think it applied there, and I had other things to talk about. But here, well, to be blunt, I don't have much to talk about the episode in this episode, so that's why we're talking about this here. Here's the thing. Body snatching as a concept uh, is kind of dumb. 
Now, let me explain what I mean by this. We... <laughs> okay. I was just remembering a thing from TNG that's really unrelated. I'd have to explain and You guys don't care. Uh, the point being... If I had the ability to put my my consciousness into your body, which is a weird thing to concept, but just bear with me, okay? If I had the ability to do that, to switch us, right? What is most likely to happen is you'd have two bodies basically nonsensically, uncontrollably gibbering and, and flailing around on the ground. Why? Because if I tell my arm to do this, and you... At this, you know, tell your arm to do this exact same movement. First of all, it's not the exact same movement, so let's let's go ahead and get that out of the way because there's no such thing as exact same when it comes to something like that. But let's assume somehow in some perfect universe you could do the exact same move, maneuver I'm doing. The signals going through my neural network, the signals that are pushing through my brain, are literally different than the ones that are going through yours. The chemical, the electrons, it's ex it's not exactly completely different, but it is different. So your consciousness has no idea how to interpret all the signals going to it or coming from it. I can actually explain this very simply. You'd be a baby. Remember the first however many years, you know, four or five or six years, a human being spends learning how their signals work, figuring out what this input means and how to push out this output. That's why a child has so much difficulty maneuvering and controlling their fingers in more delicate things. We have to learn this over time in order to be able to do things like this, right? So you would effectively be reverted back to the state of not having control of your own body, just like you were when you were a baby. So that's the first reason it's kind of dumb. The second reason it's kind of dumb is, in virtually every case, the idea is, well, it can be expressed as one of two things. One, you know everything about the original person, which brings up a huge philosophical question, namely, do our memories define who we are? Because if you have all of their memories, then how is it that you are now distinct from them? How is it you can now not be influenced by the memories which are which are guiding you, right? The second thought, of course, is you don't have any of their memories, in which case it's going to be incredibly easy to figure out that you're not them. In fact, one of my biggest problems with this episode is Tom is so blatantly, incredibly obviously not Tom Paris when he's... The, the alien, they never actually give him a name, because it's not Steth. Steth was the previous victim. It is so obvious that that's not Tom Paris that it actually bothers me that the crew doesn't figure that out. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so both ways, that doesn't work either. So we're, from a purely writing perspective and from an actual scientific perspective, body snatching's dumb. But I'm okay with it if they do it to good use. DS9 actually did the, one of the forms of body snatching, the shape-shifting, obviously, form, uh, to good effect several times, and uh, really did some good stuff with that. I'll never forget the scene where O'Brien walks up to Cisco on Earth and is like, hey, uh, I'm not going to say anything else. I know several of my viewers haven't watched DS9 yet, but there's some good stuff, and those of you who have watched it probably know what I'm talking about. Please uh, avoid DS9 spoilers in the, in the comments. So... You know, okay, I'm willing to suspend his belief if you do something good with it. And we've already seen a good episode that did something with that in Voyager. I already mentioned it, Warlord, which is one of my favorite early on episodes and was a great exploration of, of the character. It was actually arguably the first real exploration of Kess as a character since Caretaker. And the actress, uh, Jennifer Line, Jennifer Line, Jennifer Lee, one of these days I'll get her pronunciation right, did a great job of portraying, uh, you know, all three roles basically she had to in that episode. So it was some good stuff. But like I said, this episode does not get that same thing. And I'm going to explain why right now, right at the beginning. 
the villain has the ability to, like I said, he's kind of a in-between. He literally switches forms with you. So you take his form and he takes yours. And he basically, so that's like a part one thing. <clears throat> but then there's the changing, shape-shifting thing. So like I said, it's kind of an in-between thing. But anyways, he has this power. And some alien like that is the kind of alien you would think would be some kind of master villain or someone who has the ability to really think their their way through a situation. Very cunning, very intelligent. Problem is, the villain in this episode is a dumbass. He shows on repeated, multiple occasions to be incredibly stupid. He does not have the ability to think forward at all. He does not have the ability to plan past the, mo past the most basic next step plans. And, well, that's a problem because when you have a villain who's an idiot, the only way to make him any kind of contest for the heroes is to make them stupid too, which ties back to what I was talking about earlier. So I know people are going to argue in defense of this episode, and that's fine. As always, I love hearing differing opinions. But for me, the fact that he was so dumb aggravated me. And, and again, the crew had to be even dumber to allow him to get away with what he did. There's a scene where Tom literally cannot find sickbay. There's a scene where he... I mean, this man knows nothing. Obviously, there's no memory swapping here. The, the episode makes that clear. He knows nothing of the host he takes over. So he is so retarded that he can't actually fool basically anyone. And he lasts about a day at most in his, in his Tom Paris form before he has to bail on it because he's already given away the fact that he's not Tom Paris in some way or another. And the and it's astonishing to me that the crew actually thinks that that's Tom Paris. Keeping in mind, body snatching is a thing that exists in Star Trek. Um, the Doctor himself has actually talked about this as a possibility in the past, as something that can happen. So, um... The fact that they're just like, this is clearly Tom Paris, again, it just dumbs them down. It makes them stupid. And I don't like that. <sighs> Let me give you an alternate. I know I haven't done my alternate Voyager things in a while. In my defense, most of season four has been good stuff, and I wouldn't rewrite most of it. But let me go, go and give you a quick Arshingaya, the lore runner, rewrite here really quick. What if the villain was actually really smart? What if he actually really planned this stuff out in advance? What if he was capable of blending into Voyager just for a little while, just long enough to evade capture? To ensure that his previous body was kept. Because keep in mind, he this is a situation with you can come up, you could basically get away with anything, really. The only possibility of someone understanding what you're doing is if it's a previous victim, which if you notice is actually what exactly what happens in the episode. But let me explain this. Let's say you go in and steal this brand new top of the line military grade shuttle that has a brand new warp drive. I know this you know, bear with me, right? And you use it to great effect to, to warp here and warp there, steal this great stuff, steal this stuff, all this financial wealth or all this uh, information or whatever it is you're after, whatever your long-term goal is, that doesn't matter. And so you get all this information and wealth and power, squirrel it away, swap with someone briefly. Now, you've basically won at that point as long as you can keep that charade for even a little bit. Why? Well, because you... You have your previous body is the body that has committed all these crimes, and you would go out of your way to make sure it was obvious. You wouldn't try to hide it. You wouldn't try to get away with it. You would be like, ha, you literally waving at the camera, hi, I'm stealing all your stuff. So they know that's the guy who stole your stuff, right? So when they go after that guy, they find your victim, who is now body swapped. And I'm sorry, but 
oh, no, no, I'm secretly not me. I'm another person and he body swapped with me is not something most military people or people in general are going to accept as an actual explanation for what's going on. You have a guaranteed out for getting away with virtually anything you want to. You see where you see where the potential is here for a really great villain. And they waste it on this jackass who's basically the midlife crisis guy, which I'll talk about in a bit more. But, I mean, really, he, he his word choice is so blatantly obvious and dumb in its execution that he might as well be just a giant poster child for, this is what happens when you have a midlife crisis. Do you want to have a midlife crisis, Tommy? No, you don't, do you? Because this is, you know, it, it, it's so blatant and so over the top that there's not even a character there. Now, I want to take a moment and say that I do not blame Dan Butler for this. He's the gentleman who played Steth, a.k.a. the villain. Uh, he's the guy uh, you see with the, the four nostrils. I mention this because Dan Butler does a great job in this episode. He actually plays three separate roles throughout the course of the episode. He plays the villain, he plays Tom Paris, and then he plays the original Steth, the guy who was body-swapped uh, with whoever the actual alien is. Three separate roles, and he does an amazing job of distinguishing each one of them from each other and actually doing, uh, getting some nuances across very well. So, definite props to him. Great guest actor. You know, probably the highlight of the episode, in my opinion. But getting back to my alternate villain. So we have a villain who's actually smart, who has set up Tom in this horrible situation, and Tom is screwed. Now, as I mentioned, the only way out of this is if someone who had previously been body-swapped then encounters you. This is how this episode is an amateur episode. A lot of things happen in this episode that literally only happen to push the plot forward. What a coincidence! After, you know, a year of being, uh, of having been swapped in a previous body, by sheer happenstance, someone, the, the previous body swap happens to show up and say, Oh, hey, I found you in your ship that you didn't have until very recently that you just recently stole and that the, the guard are after you for. But it's okay, because I found you. And, and because of the fact that I am someone you body-swapped, I actually will believe you when you say you were body-swapped, as opposed to everyone else in the universe. Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase for this over in Cinema Sins. It's called, what a coincidence. And it really does boil down to that. I'm okay with coincidence to some extent or another. I am. But this episode literally leans a little bit too heavy on it to make some things work. Let me give you another example. I'm going to skip ahead of my notes here. Later on, um, let me give you the construction of events, okay? The villain, who has no name, which is why I'm just calling him that, the villain uh, realizes that this isn't working, and he's just been ordered away by Janeway. So he attacks Janeway and swaps bodies with her. Okay, that's not a bad plan. But there's only two ways this can work out. We see what happens when he body swaps. He body swaps and he's fine, and his victim is dazed and confused. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, so that's really important, though, to construct this. So we then hear Janeway say, calmly, I might add, security to my ready room. And then, she's being choked by Tom! So there's only two possibilities here. The, the swap has to happen before the security goes in. That's absolutely mandatory. There's no other time at which it could have happened because there are always witnesses elsewise. And so the swap happened before security going in. So why is Tom strangling her? Tom's body, strangling Janeway's body, to make that clear. Well, either he did the swap and then Janeway in Tom's body is like, Ugh, and then he grabbed him and managed to make a convincing enough appearance of Tom strangling her so that the security would shoot him, which is kind of dumb to begin with, especially since it'd be more likely the strangling would be like, Ugh, and probably not even be able to stand properly. Because as we just covered, they're very dazed and confused and barely able to function after the swap. Or, 
and I think this is the best idea possible here. Janeway is already recovered in the new body and is just fine, and has decided to strangle her own body, which has the other guy in it. Although that doesn't explain how Janeway's voice was able to call for uh, security so calmly and under normal circumstances. Which, by the way, should have also been a hint to the security. Security, I need you in my ready room. Oh god, I can barely breathe. There's a disconnect there. That's the problem with this episode overall. The overall plot is very poorly written, has a lot of plot holes. I'm not going to cover all of them. I've only I've only talked about two of them. Uh, three of them, excuse me. And basically just lacks in construction. And that's why it falls flat for me. Now, let's talk about one other thing really quick. This episode examines and then immediately abandons the idea of the midlife crisis for Tom Paris. I feel like that would have been the stronger story, personally. I'm still doing my rewrite thing, by the way. I haven't really let go of it. I said, smarter villain would have worked. But the midlife crisis thing, really expand upon that. Let's, let's talk about the concept of a midlife crisis really quick, shall we? There's a reason that phrase exists, and it boils down to this. I have lived for a decent period of time. There's a reason it hits most people around 40. And yes, by the way, men and women both. There's no gender inequality here, okay? I've seen plenty of women go through just as bad of midlife crises as men. You know, stereotypes or not, okay? So let's just leave all that out the door, okay? Um, you're about in your 40s is when I usually see it happen. And it's like, what have I done with my life, you know? Because, and it's very logical for it to happen. Most people, statistically speaking, will not have accomplished what they wanted in their lives by the time they're 40. Because, statistically speaking, most people will never accomplish what they wanted to do in their lives. Sorry to sound depressing, but that is truth. Which is what makes it depressing, by the way. But anyways, so... It's very logical to reach a point in your time where you're just like, is this it? You know? Is this all there is? And a lot of people do some, some extreme things. Some people do very stupid things. Basically to cling to the past is the idea. Or to try and accomplish what you never did. But there's nothing necessarily wrong with a midlife crisis on its own merits. It's actually very natural to go through a period of uncertainty. Because, and one thing this episode does really well is it shows Tom is having a midlife crisis not in the stereotypical way. It's not that he's unhappy. It's not that he's unthankful. It's not that he wants something else. A midlife crisis is ultimately about one thing. Fear. What if? What if I did better? What if I did something else? Oh God, maybe this is all there is. Maybe I'll never be able to accomplish this. You know, it's all about various different fears bubbling up inside you until you basically can't contain it or you have no idea how to deal with it. Now, I've seen some people deal with midlife crises in an interesting way. I'm going to leave names up, but there was a woman who was having a pretty bad midlife crisis and no idea what she was doing, and she was supported by her husband fully and firmly throughout that whole thing. She wanted to go do crazy stuff, and he said, you got it, we'll make it happen. And in so doing, he demonstrated why most, how most midlife crises, in my experience in real life, are defeated by showing the truth of the fact that that fear is an irrational fear. It's, an it's, it, it's, it's a fear that has no purpose in existing. It is a fear we can face and then confront and defeat because you do have a good life or you do have a life you're content with or you do have people that care about you or you do have whatever it is that you actually have. And with that support and aid and, and, and assistance, you work through it. Now, I mention this because Tom, of all people, going through a midlife crisis actually makes a lot of sense to me. This is a man who never had anything his entire life. And as I've talked about before, and as I will mention uh, again in the future, Tom is basically in his own personal paradise. He has everything he's ever wanted on Voyager. 
that by itself would make just about anybody afraid. Not of, you know, oh God, what am I missing? But what if I lose it? I believe that's the core fear that drove Tom to his one episode midlife crisis. Again, I would have stretched this out more, but I would have also expanded on this idea. What if I screw it up? What if I can't do this right? What if I can't keep going? What if I make a mistake? What if I what if I lose Bolana? What if I lose the pilot's chair? What if I you see where I'm going with this? And that kind of fear would grow over time. It would build underneath there until it reaches a point where it actually starts bubbling out. And I do think the Voyager crew his family would be sufficiently supportive to help him get through that, to face that fear and to fight it and to accept and acknowledge that, no, he's not going to lose it. They're not going to go away. He's got his life. In his own words, he is home. And I like that idea, and that's how what I would have done instead. But, of course, that's not what the episode does. Um, <laughs> that being said, I want to uh, bring out a couple things here. First of all, I like the fact that early on in the episode, Chakotay picks up pretty much immediately on the fact that Tom is unhappy and brings him into his room and base and doesn't he doesn't chew him out. He doesn't say that's not how we tolerate this. Again, the Chakotay I've always envisioned is basically something of a Riker allegory. He does have that familial approach. He is definitely a, a commander without question, but he is a commander of people he cares about. And so, rather than shutting him down or giving him orders or run around the brig and get, you know give me twenty. You know, anything like that. Chakotay opens up to him and says, What's wrong? What's wrong, Tom? Help me out, man. Explain this to me. Make me Help me work with this, you know? And he praises him and tells him, You've done amazing things with your life. So I want to make sure you keep doing amazing things with your life. That was a great approach and probably my favorite scene in this episode. Um, that being said, Chakotay is a moron in an earlier scene. Tom says, It's a coaxial warp drive. Now, momentary reality check. For those of you who don't know, coaxial usually is associated with a certain thing in real life which has to do with a, with a type of cable. It's really hard to say that word without thinking that, especially myself as a former network engineer. But uh, coaxial is a geometric concept, which uh, it, I'm not going to explain, but ironically actually does apply fairly well here. So I'm with that. But Chakotay's response to it's a coaxial warp drive is a coaxial what? Which just makes Chakotay sound like an idiot, because um, the emphasis should have been on, for example, a what? Warp drive? Because, I, I, I don't know, maybe maybe it's me, but I think Chakotay probably knows what a warp drive is. Just maybe. And then Tom Paris just goes from his usual level of competency, which, as I've said before, is like his defining character trait, to almost Mary Sue levels of being able to be the only person on the ship who figures out... Oh, excuse me, this this theoretical form of warp drive and how to repair it on the fly and then permanently repair it later on. Now, okay, on the, on the one hand, I'm kind of willing to go with that because, again, competency is Tom's thing. He also is really well known for thinking outside the box. He's the kind of person who will use unusual, uh, basically non-Euclidean, as I would call it, thinking, nonlinear thinking, in order to solve problems. And I think that's one of the reasons why Tom has always been so competent. But in that early scene where he's there in his grease monkey outfit, and he's just, he's just a little too competent. I felt like they just went a little bit too far with it. But again, that's because the script itself is kind of poorly constructed. Oh my god, there's this thing we've never heard of before, never done things before, but Tom's like, it's okay, I can fix it, let's do it. And then he fixes it. Again, badly constructed. Um, now, 
I, I mentioned this here, as I already mentioned, this is a little bit too much of an obvious episode. And again, the, it's all about the execution of the script. Tom is having a midlife crisis uh, for the only time basically ever. This is the only time it will ever be brought up. And when he's having a midlife crisis, this alien, who as we've already mentioned, is an idiot and also is a poster child for midlife crisis, shows up and is like, hey, I love living life on the edge and I love just randomly doing things for absolutely no reason. Chaos. Yeah, it's great. A little too obvious there, episode. Now, then we go to something else which just makes me just blown away. Tom is the one helping repair the theoretical warp drive ship. I'm going to say that again. Tom Paris, pilot, is the guy who's helping to repair a ship he's never been on before, never worked with before ever, um, with a warp drive that is only theoretical up until this exact moment. He has a conversation about these repairs with the chief engineer, who has nothing to do with those repairs, or any of the other engineers on the ship, who, as we've already established, are idiots. <laughs> so, what? And of course, again, it's obvious why. Because the episode needs Tom to get into contact with the alien so that not only can the body swap happen, but so we can have the midlife crisis thing. I hate to keep hammering this point in, but it's just the bad construction. It is so much more logical for Tom to go over with a team. Tom to go over with Balana. There's even moments for character possibilities there. Why not have Balana comment on how much more excited and exuberant Tom feels like over here? The, the noticeable change in his behavior. Have that be a way to explore this midlife crisis problem. Have it be a way for him to open up to her and finally admit that I'm, I'm scared. You know, I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose you. Do something with it. Don't just shove them over there because the plot demands it. Ugh. I, I should point out that this is one of those technobabble solution problems that irritates me. Because they're fighting the enemy ship, you know, the shuttle actually, and they have to shut it down. So the solution is a technobabble beam. That's how they solve the episode. They shoot a technobabble beam. However, I will give partial credit for the fact that they set that up in advance because Tom's the one who helped fix the ship, so it's actually logical that he would have a way to disable it. But wouldn't it have been more satisfying if Balana was the one who figured out how to shoot the Technobabble Beam? If she had been the one to complete the circle, so to speak, having been the one who helped to fix the ship to begin with and figured out how to break it as well so that she could get back her Tom? Wouldn't that have been much more satisfying? Just personally. Um, and I already talked about the midlife crisis thing. I don't have much else to add there. There's my note about it. And there's the note about Jane Way and how dumb that is. Uh, one thing I want to point out. The doctor scans Tom's brainwaves and says there's nothing wrong. Even though we know for a fact that at this point in time that's Janeway in Tom's body. So it should have been uh, immediately apparent that that's something wrong there. Especially since, as we've established multiple times in this show, that Voyager regularly keeps scans and keeps records of everyone's brainwaves on the ship. This this was even recent uh, with um, oh, what's the name of that episode? The, the shared dream episode. It was just this season, uh, or was it last? It was it was pretty recent. But anyways, this is something that's established, and it was established before that actually. Like I said, multiple times, and yet for some reason he thinks that's Tom Paris, even though it's clearly Janeway's brain patterns in there. Unconscious or no, it should have been really obvious, but whatever. But that brings me to my next point. It was a little bit too obvious that they'd done the swap. Let me talk about what I mean here. It's pretty obvious that Janeway had swapped with Tom because the way she acts, pretty much every scene after that swap, is very not Janeway. 
it's a little too obvious, actually. There's no surprise there. There's no shock. Because, as I've mentioned before, if you're infiltrating someone and you don't have their memories, it should take about 10 seconds to figure out that out. If I swapped bodies with someone, so someone is walking around in my damaged body and I feel bad for that person because I can barely walk around in this body. But if they're walking around in my body and they encounter my sister, it's going to take my sister, again, about 10 seconds to figure out it's not me or that something's really wrong. You know, one of the two. But this is Star Trek, where body swapping is a normal thing. Well, at least a, a known thing, something that has happened in the past and is documented. So the idea would be in their heads that it's possible, ergo, it should be really obvious to figure out something like that. But of course, the crew is idiots, so they don't figure out Tom is it, and they don't figure out Janeway is it either. But that brings me to the next point. And again, this is all, all these points in service, are in service of the plot rather than actually being logical. Janeway sees Tom Paris. That is to say, Tom in the wrong body and Steth in the wrong... It's hard to get my pronouns correct here. But the point is, sees Tom and the victim, okay, on the enemy ship, and immediately shuts down the transmission. Now, it's obvious why. Because they have to, because they're the bad guy, and they know that it would take 10 seconds to identify that that's Tom. And then Chakotay is like, you know, Tom, what are you doing? And Tom, rather than saying any of the 1,500 billion things he could say, references a conversation that happened the previous day. Credit where credit's due, that is a good way to get Chakotay's attention, and it does. And Chakotay believes him pretty much like that, which is exactly what should have happened. But secondary question, why is it that the enemy, you know, the, the, the alien ship is the only one that can catch up to the shuttle? Keep in mind it hasn't zipped away yet. That's not a thing that's happened yet. So it's just in normal space. It hasn't done its uh, its its coaxial drive yet thing. So Voyager probably would have been, oh, I don't know, just as if not way, way, way more capable of catching up to a shuttle than the other ship would. So why is letting him out of the tractor beam such a big moment? And you can kind of see how this, this fits here because the, Janeway has to shut them down because... Or not, you know, the, the alien in Janeway's body has to shut them down because it's the only way to keep the, the surprise. And then they have to do this thing over there with Seven. And then all these things construct their way in such a way that it has to happen so that we have this big climactic finale that has no climax at all and involves a technobabble beam. And overall, is just really dissatisfying. Everything was done in service of the plot. It felt like a textbook episode. And then this happens. And then... I want you to picture, like, the most boring person's voice you can think. And then this happens. And then this person walks forward. And then they take a step. And they come to a door. And they open the door. It's all obvious and blatant. And kind of pointless. Because ultimately, the only thing this episode has any impact on whatsoever is the fact that Tom finally lets Bolana in. And it's such a shame because I started writing a note here. Which I was, I, I was going to say was a nice touch of the, of the symbology. Why do I keep using that word? It's not a word. The sim... Uh, Symbolic, there we go, the symbolic gesture of Tom letting Balana in. But then, in keeping with the bad writing of this episode, Tom had to go out of his way and actually point out that he was literally letting her in. And it was already obvious because he literally opens the garage door to let her in. So we're already talking a really obvious symbolism here. Whatever. <laughs> this isn't a bad episode. It's just a really boring episode. And it's it's no surprise that when I first pick this up and I see vis-a-vis, -vis, I'm like... What's this episode? I couldn't even remember it. I had no memory of this episode. And then I saw a picture of the guy with the two nostrils. I'm like, oh, God, it's, it's this episode. Whatever. 
So, it's finally happened. Season 4's excellent running streak has been besmirched. I'm really curious what I'm going to think of the next episode, because by memory, I remember Omega Directive as a good episode. It's got some good Seven moments, and some good Janeway moments, and it introduces something that STO took and ran with, which was awesome, but we'll see when I get through it in analysis mode, so I'll see you guys later. You're the first humans I've met, and that wrench had enough cellular residue on it for me to check your DNA. I have good news. Ah! We're compatible. Consider this a favor. I know how unhappy you've been with this dreary, settled life, so I'm taking it off your hands. I'm betting there's still some fun to be had here. Voyager is a great ship, Tom. I'll take good care of it.